0: Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts,
1: Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. Great to be back with you.
0: And Haley Kanaf. Hey, Amber and Alex. Okay. Haley, I'm going to let you in on some old school stuff we used to talk about on Pro Se a lot, and that's the Fire Festival
2: Mm. and
0: all of the legal fallout that happened after the ill-fated Fire Festival. This was something I was Alex, you can back me up here. I think it's fair to say I was low-key obsessed with it.
1: You were. And I mean, it's just, if you are a longtime listener of the show, this was, we started the show in like April-ish of 2017. There was like a soft launch. So, and that's right around the time this was going down. And this was like one of our first hobby horses of like. It sure was. Obviously, it, it blew up the internet you know, even outside of the legal news world, but we were kind of seizing. I was like, oh, yeah, like this is where we can talk about the lawsuits and we can like really carve out a niche. And it was um, yes, it was a formative moment, both for the culture and for pro se, I would say.
0: <laughs> and then obviously I we followed it as it made its way through the courts. And there were plenty of opportunities for that. But also, I got really invested again a few years later when there was not one, but two documentaries yes. about the whole debacle. I watched them mm-hmm. both, yes. guys. I watched them both. If you are wondering why I'm bringing this up yet again, <laughs> it's because over the weekend, or maybe it was late last week, mm-hmm. Billy McFarlane, the mastermind behind Firefest 1, who ended <laughs> up in prison for everything that went down there he announced that there's going to be a firefest too.
1: Uh, yeah, I uh <laughs> I, <laughs> I saw love it this so much. I saw it. I immediately thought of you Amber because of what you already said. Um and now here we are talking about it. I want to I just want to say one thing here. I mean, obviously the guy is a convicted fraudster and we don't have to like sort of get into all the particulars there. It was it was a little bit Byzantine, but like I thought that the media, I mean, in addition to being a legal news reporter and podcaster, I'm also a media critic. A lot of people know that about me. <laughs> i I thought that people ran with his like narrative presentation of the fest a little bit too credulously, I would say. First of all, they quoted him as saying that the idea for reviving the fire festival was from what he called, and I'm quoting here a seven-month stint in solitary confinement. Now, Amber, did that send up any flags for you?
0: Are you telling me (laughs) that you don't believe in the efficacy of a new business plan, nay, manifesto that's 50 pages long that he wrote while he was in solitary? You don't think that's sound?
1: Oh, I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about the idea of of him being in solitary for seven months. That is like (laughs) so beyond, I mean, I can't prove it. I'm just speculating here. I wasn't in his, you know, penitentiary or whatever. I highly, highly doubt that. Um, Solitary confinement is a big issue for, like, prison reform and all of that. Like, the idea that you would be by yourself in a cell without windows or whatever for seven months is, like, really crazy. And I, frankly, don't believe it.
2: What if this was a result of him trying to put together a sort of prison fire fest of
1: sorts? (laughs) (laughs) I thought of that, too. The idea of, like... I mean, I actually like you. You joke, but like, there are some acts who would probably play at like. I mean, you know, Johnny Cash famously played at a prison. Uh, other acts have done this, and I do wonder if he tried to do that, but I don't know for sure.
0: I mean, as far as whether or not he was in solitary for seven months, I agree with you, Alex. Seems dubious. And correct me if I'm wrong. I could be mistaken on this, but I also think he was in the same prison as uh, Mike Sorrentino, the Situation from yeah, Jersey of course. Shore. And yeah. that they'd become friendly. And that was sort of something I'd also joked about on Per se.
1: Yes, yeah. Uh,
0: Mike came out of that experience not saying how rough the conditions were in that particular prison. I mean, he was <laughs> he was winning bocce ball championships and stuff like that.
1: <laughs> That's a good point. So I mean, that solitary confinement might be different than what I'm than what I just portrayed. But anyway, uh Firefest 2, if it gets off the ground. We'll be covering the
0: subsequent lawsuits on Pro Se, I would imagine.
1: (laughs) Yeah, or more likely if it doesn't get off the ground. Anyway, we have lots of interesting stuff to talk about. Amber, I know you had uh, a really cool conversation with Emily Field, um, and I, I think you should tell the folks about that.
0: Absolutely. So Emily is our product liability reporter, and she came on to talk about a great piece she wrote about the legal liability for the giant wildfires in Maui and how that's all playing out. And it's shaping up to be a really significant legal story in addition to just a devastating disaster for America. But she talks us through sort of how those cases compare to what happened after giant wildfires in California and the legal fallout for utility companies that were involved there.
1: So definitely stay tuned for that. Um, but as we were talking about before we uh, hit record on this episode, Amber, you are really the MVP of this week. You did a really awesome interview with Emily, and now uh, I do want to throw it to you because we have an interesting employment case.
0: Look, it's me. I'm still me. I always want to talk employment. So yes. uh, bringing up all my favorite things on. She's this a genuine
1: show, woman, folks. I'm
0: talking. I'm talking <laughs> Fire Fest. I'm talking employment law. I'm a happy girl. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the latest is that late last week, the en banc fifth circuit expanded the scope of actions that, that constitute employment discrimination. It's a ruling that is expected to prompt scores more bias claims in the fifth circuit, but there's also a looming Supreme court case that could once again, realign how the anti-discrimination statute is applied.
2: Okay. A lot going on here, but
0: first let's dig into
2: this case at hand. What's going on here?
0: Okay, so here in the Fifth Circuit, the case was brought by a group of female detention officers that challenged the legality of the Dallas County Sheriff's Department's scheduling policy. That scheduling policy only allowed male officers to have full weekends off, never the women. Yeah, exactly, (laughs) Haley. That was my reaction, too. Okay, so the Fifth Circuit panel that heard it last year sided with the Sheriff's Department, finding that the discrimination lawsuits could only be brought if they were based on what they call ultimate employment decisions. And that means something related to hiring, firing, leave, or compensation. That comports with decades of precedent in that circuit.
1: Okay, and we're talking about an en banc decision here, uh, which is the full circuit court, the Fifth Circuit Court. And you're telling us they reversed that. What was that all about?
0: Yes, indeed. The en banc Fifth Circuit said the phrase ultimate employment decisions doesn't appear in Title VII, the federal statute. And that appearing in Fifth Circuit precedent, that phrase has been inserted there and actually, quote, thwarts legitimate claims of workplace bias. So the court tossed out that previous standard. It set down a new broader standard that employees or job applicants only need to show that they were subjected to workplace bias because of protected characteristics with respect to, and here's the list, hiring, firing, compensation, or the terms, conditions, or privileges of employment. So the Fifth Circuit also said that this new broader standard brings it in line with the interpretation of other circuit courts and the way that the U.S. Supreme Court has traditionally approached Title VII.
2: Okay, well, we can, as you said earlier, we can uh, safely guess that this is going to result in a lot more claims being brought, but... What happens next? What should we be watching for specifically?
0: Yeah, I got a couple of things that are forward-looking here. So our friend and frequent guest, Ben Gareri, reported on this for Law 360's Employment Authority. And experts told him that the now-rejected ultimate employment decision standard was basically so high that often cases would either be dismissed in the Fifth Circuit or that plaintiff's attorneys would just straight up not file those kind of bias cases because they knew they'd be kicked out anyway.
1: Yeah, there's a chilling effect on even trying to litigate it. Yeah,
0: definitely. So that's why there's the prognostication that, okay, well, it's different now. So a significant uptick in those kind of discrimination cases in that circuit is expected. Mm -hmm. But that's not the only thing to look out for. There's also something to watch here from the U.S. Supreme Court. They accepted a case called Muldrew versus St. Louis, and that could again redraw the lines around Title VII. In this Mulder case, the justices will decide if the Eighth Circuit was right to rule that a police sergeant can't pursue a suit alleging she was illegally reassigned from a prestigious task force and instead saddled with a bunch of administrative work, and she alleges that all happened because she's a woman. The Eighth Circuit had ruled that the officer's claims weren't actionable under Title VII because the job transfer didn't result in a change to her title, her salary, or her benefits. So you can see some similarities there about what does Title 7 cover.
1: Yeah, you're in that gray area of like final like 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 you see sort of like ultimate employment decisions or just like the environment or condition. I mean, conditions is in there, which I think is pretty interesting. Um and I think that the analysis will hinge on what conditions are, whether it's like you're working longer hours or you're like you get to work more weekends, things like that.
0: You can definitely see how it gets yeah. thorny. I mean, yeah, right yeah, yeah. Away.
1: I'm I'm prognosticating a little bit there. But yeah, tell us more about, about the Supreme Court case.
0: So the specific question the justices will consider in Muldrew is whether Title VII bars discrimination in transfer decisions without a court having separately determined that the transfer decision caused a significant disadvantage. It isn't clear how the court will rule. I mean, that's... That's the beauty well, sure. of the Supreme Court. They take these cases <laughs> that are real gray areas. and We kind of have to wait. And we're early days. I mean, they have granted cert, but don't have a lot of the briefing and all of that yet. So the standard they set could be definitive here. Um, as we all know, though, as court watchers, often the Supreme Court opts for narrow solutions to the cases they're presented. So the case gives the court a chance to set a nationwide legal threshold for Title VII. And this Fifth Circuit ruling may have given them another way to think about what that threshold should be. But we are going to have to wait. You know, it'll take about a year for us to get the answer to this question. But we should have some kind of weigh in from the Supreme Court by the end of next term.
1: Love to talk about a story and then just give people the carrot to keep listening, because we're going to want to see how that resolves. Um, we thank you, Amber. Are. Yeah, thank you, Amber. Very cool story there and, and lots of uh, prongs to watch. Um, Next, I do want to talk about a very exciting, interesting development that we have in the always lively world of art law. The Second Circuit has ruled that a law school in Vermont has the right to put up barriers, a sort of temporary wall that obstructs the view of multiple uh, sort of artistic works, murals, that students and community members have deemed racially insensitive. Um, This was over objections from the artist who said that doing so, obstructing his work in this way, is basically the same thing as destroying or altering his work. So you can see how this got very contentious very quickly.
0: I love when Perse gets into what is art, because this... Reminds me so much <laughs> of Cheese Wall. And you know, I loved talking about Cheese Wall in the southern border. We which all
2: did. <laughs> A little too much, too much I think. <laughs> yes,
0: exactly. We did enjoy it too much. I'm going to try to hold myself together and instead just stick on point here. It is fascinating, though, to talk about legal protections for expressive art. What is sort of more details about this controversial mural?
1: If you are new, by the way, or new to the show, I looked it up. We discussed Cheese Wall in episode 250. We won't go into that. But the same law is in play here, so I, I'm glad we touched on that. For this case that we're talking about today, the murals in question were painted by a man named Sam Curson at the behest of the Vermont Law and Graduate School in the 1990s. And what these murals depict is the long history of the slave trade, um, including the capturing and abduction of black people in Africa, the sale of their bodies and abilities at slave markets, and more germane to why this college commissioned it, the work of Vermont abolitionists to help formerly enslaved people through either their work on the Underground Railroad or other things like that. So that's the art that we're talking about. But over time, and again, this is in the 19, this is, I believe it was completed in 1993 or so, so we're 30 years on here. And, you know, o- over time, students and other people in the community have kind of bristled at the depictions in these murals. They basically say that the way that they depict black people is somewhat cartoonish and calls to mind some like very racist iconography of like, you know, the, the Jim Crow South and other things like that. I don't want to get into that too much. You can Google these murals for yourself. That's really not what we're talking about here, the public outcry. I mean, I will say that it's talking about slavery and the slave trade. So obviously the murals are very provocative and contain like very powerful images. And the style itself, I will say, is like somewhat exaggerated. I would say like in certain points, somewhat caricature-ish. But again, you you can seek that out for yourself, make your own determination. And basically, the outcry against this art really crested in the summer of 2020 during, a lot, obviously, there was a lot of um, racial justice activism going on at that time. And then at that point, the school finally decided to erect these acoustic panels in front of the mural, so obscuring the art, and that prompted Kersen, the artist, to sue under the Visual Artists' Rights Act, which we've talked about before and is, and is very central here.
2: I will say, I mean, we invoked cheese wall, but <laughs> clearly this is a very different piece of art um, than a wall made of cheese. This is uh, a little, a little more serious. I think we're a little less likely to get a little as out of hand as we got over that
1: cheese wall. Well, we're uh, only about like a third of the way through the segment, so
2: okay, okay. Well, I yeah, I shouldn't uh, knock on wood. We'll say. <laughs> But let's let's get back into this law. So what protections are under the Visual Artists' Rights Act?
1: Yeah, so VARA, as I'll be referring to it, uh, grants artists a moral right to protect their work. And, you know, that has a lot of different definitions. I will say, and we'll link to the story like we always do, the Second Circuit in this uh, case actually appended the not the entire law, but all of the relevant statute At the end of the opinion, which I think more judges should do. But anyway, Vara grants a moral right to artists to protect their work. And most importantly for this case, that includes protections against their art being destroyed, modified, or distorted without their consent. And when Kersen filed this suit, he asked the judge for a reading of the law that is somewhat broad because the lawyers were arguing that merely placing the panels in front of the art without touching the art or altering the art per se have the same effect as destroying it or modifying it by making it by basically disappearing it from the public space. And I think that this is a very tricky case in particular because we are talking about a mural that takes place on A huge piece of public infrastructure. In this case, these murals are painted on the side of the school's community center. It's a building, right? So it's not like he did an oil painting on a canvas that was hung inside of the building. And if, you know, if enough people object to that, you can just remove the painting. And that's basically the end of it as far as like legal recourse. That's not an option here. It's painted on the side of the building. But Kirsten has had a rough go of it. He lost at district court um, and he kept fighting to the Second Circuit, who, on pretty similar grounds, uh, struck down the artist's claims on Friday, which is what we're talking about here.
0: Okay, so I want to hear more about that because it sounds like the courts basically said that hiding something is definitely not the same as destroying it.
1: Yeah, um, and the analysis is pretty simple. It's a very readable, digestible opinion, and that the panel was basically saying that for the law's protections to take effect the art itself must be damaged or modified in a way that compromises the artist's vision or compromises what the what the statute says is a is a moral right and that if you're just arranging for it to be hidden from view within your powers as whether you're a municipality or in this case a, an academic institution or whatever That's not, if you just make arrangements for it to be concealed, that's not the same thing as as actually destroying it or harming it. Um, I thought there was a very exhaustive set of quotes here. I'll read from the opinion. Merely ensconcing a work of art behind a barrier neither modifies nor destroys the work as contemplated by Vara and thus does not implicate Vara's protections. Indeed, the wall was designed so as not to touch the murals and thus did not physically alter them whatsoever, let alone ruin them or render them unrepairable. Thus, VLS, that's Vermont Law School, plainly did not destroy the murals by erecting a barrier, shielding them from public view. So, you know, Curson, that's pretty open and shut, right? They are making a distinction between just hiding it versus actively, like, You know, painting over it would be an example of something like that or, I don't know, demolishing the building, I suppose. But Kirsten made a couple of a couple other arguments. He said that the placement of the barriers could expose the mural to like they don't get as much air. And so it could sort of like stifle their quality through adverse environmental conditions over time. But just like the district court, he, he raised that at the district court. The Second Circuit said that that is just a little too attenuated and is just not what the law contemplates. And that furthermore, nothing in the record shows that the school had any intention of physically damaging the art by putting up these panels. So they they just threw out that claim entirely.
2: I'm curious about the fallout here. I, I assume Kirsten is not pleased, um, but I'm also curious what other artists are saying about these rulings.
1: It's an interesting one. You're right. Curson obviously was uh, against the ruling, he said, because when you when you get right down to it, we're just talking about statutory interpretation here and what these words mean within the law. And he said that the court's reading of the law, this thing about, you know, sort of damaging the art itself. He thought that their reading was, quote, restrictive and that it would basically operate as a chilling effect on you know the value of expressive art, which is what this law was was written to to protect. Um, I did do kind of a cursory look at, uh, at at both what what we wrote and some other media, and that the sort of commentary from the legal art world has said that the case is basically in line with decisions that involve similar works that can't be easily removed, and there is some thought. You know, this is again just kind of idle speculation that the courts blessing in cases like this might make universities or other you know public institutions more vulnerable to the whims of public pressure when they don't like something but that's so speculative as to kind of not really be that useful at this stage anyway i will also add that the panel was very careful to add that nothing in this nothing in this decision should be read to prevent curson and the school from trying to arrive at some middle ground to, uh, at least the way the panel described it, to extricate and preserve the murals. I don't exactly know how that would work. As I said, they are literally painted on the side of a building. So, but the court was clearly just like covering their bases there as a matter of law, you, like, you know, sort of for any future circumstance that might bubble up. I did also think it was interesting when I was reading more about the case, Kurson suggested at one point when he was in this fight with the, with the school that instead of these panels that they, that they put up, They should instead install like a curtain that can open and close at certain points and that he would be happy to append the work with some kind of like disclaimer or explainer about both the intentions of the art and its style, which kind of reminded me, Amber, I'm sure you were up on this. I remember when like Mad Men got like posted to streaming services and they added disclaimers in the episode or like where Roger wears blackface or something. Yes. Yeah. You know, he suggested that at this point, something like that. At this point, the school rejected that. Um, That was long before this suit was even filed. But I'm just providing some background here. And I would think that with a court's blessing, they'd be unlikely to revisit that. But, you know, um, we for now have sort of a settling of a very sort of textual, very somewhat strict reading of this uh, of this law.
0: Devastating wildfires have destroyed much of Maui and are the deadliest in modern U.S. history. And now lawsuits have been filed over the source of the fires. Experts say the litigation could be a case of epic proportions. Here to explain the legal ramifications of this disaster is our own product liability senior reporter, Emily Field. Welcome to Pro Se, Emily. Hey, Amber. Well, I wish we had you on for a more cheerful topic, but this one's very important, so I do want to get into it. I'm sure everyone by now has seen the tragic footage of these raging fires in Hawaii and heard about just how devastating they've been. It's been more than 100 people are are now dead from the fires. Many more remain missing. And there's just been so much property damage. That kind of mass loss has, of course, led us to lawsuits. Can you tell us who's suing and where they're placing the blame?
3: Right. So the first suits that have been filed so far have been brought by um, residents of Lahaina who've lost... Uh, their homes in the fire, Um, and at least a couple of suits have been brought by individuals who were physically hurt, um, like they were burned or suffered smoke inhalation from the fires. And they're blaming um, Hawaiian Electric uh, for not shutting off the power lines during this period of really high winds from an offshore hurricane that they were warned about by the uh, National Weather Service.
0: Okay, so that utility company knew that there was the wind conditions and they're basically saying you should have shut everything down before anything sparked into a fire.
3: Right. Exactly. So basically, um, yeah, you have a combination of, you know, a downed power line that was still alive uh, next to dry vegetation and like really high winds, just like whipping up this colossal fire.
0: So how many suits have we seen so far, Emily, roughly?
3: I have seen um, at least three. Uh, There's been one proposed class action and at least two uh, personal injury suits. But um, this is like the tip of the iceberg so far. Like there's going to be a a deluge of lawsuits.
0: Yeah, I am gonna. I definitely want to get into what we're expecting there, but I also want to kind of put this in context. This isn't the first, unfortunately, this isn't the first recent giant fire we've had in America. California has faced a lot of really devastating fires. What have we learned about the kind of mass loss in a state and, and what that's led to in the legal system?
3: Right, so uh, we have the wildfires in California that were blamed on Pacific Gas and Electric, which is the nation's largest utility. And this is just like years of wildfires. Like you could practically you know, set a clock to it every summer. Like for example, there was the, uh, the 2018 Camp Fire that killed more than 80 people. And that was the worst fire in California history. And sort of similar to how the fire in Maui is alleged to have started, um, those fires were started by old electrical equipment that was just too close to vegetation. And PG&E had problems, like, going back years, if not decades, with just, like, not keeping vegetation away from electrical equipment and just, like, aging infrastructure and that kind of thing.
0: So they also faced a deluge of suits. What happened in California? Right. So they were, fa- they were facing about 70,000 suits, millions in
3: liabilities, and they ended up filing for bankruptcy in 2019. And they had a, um, a $59 billion Reorganization plan, which included about 13 billion in settlements for wildfire victims.
0: Wow, those are some really big numbers we're talking about. So you did reference earlier that we're expecting a lot more suits like the ones you're describing based on this Maui fire. Do we have any sense of the scope? Like, will it be on par with what happened in California or even bigger here, perhaps?
3: Yeah. I mean, like like you said, this is the deadliest fire in US history over the past like 100 years. um, One of the attorneys that we talked to said he said he expected to see just as many, if not more. Um, And there's, you know, there's 115 people who are dead. There's still like 1,100 who are missing. That's not even accounting for like the homes and the businesses that have been lost. Like it's hard to like wrap your head around it really.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I've seen some reporting from you, Emily, and others that uh, it's at minimum so far over 2,200 homes and businesses have been destroyed. And that's probably a, a low estimate. And then you think about all of the families from the people who were actually killed, but then there's many more, like you said, are missing. And then there's others still that were injured terribly in the fires. So the numbers really start to add up here.
3: Yeah. And like I was just thinking about this, you know, earlier, um, like, say you, you were lucky enough to survive the fire, but you now you lost your home, like you lost your business. That's going to take just like years to rebuild. And we're also talking about Maui. It's an island. You have to ship everything in. Like That's just going to be expensive and time-consuming. Like, I wouldn't be surprised like if people just end up having to move off island and relocate entirely.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely a devastating situation. So from the legal standpoint, if we're expecting a ton of these suits, what are the mechanisms we think might happen next, based on experience from, say, looking at what happened in California? Could could some of this be handled on a class basis, or are we talking like perhaps big MDL actions here? What do we think this is going to manifest as?
3: So one of the, one of the is a proposed class action. This actually was filed by the, some attorneys who worked on the Surfside condo collapse, and they're seeking sort of like a similar class model, uh, because. Uh, They say that that helped them get to a settlement like pretty quickly, I think within a year. Uh, But one of the, um, one of the wildfire attorneys that I talked to, he was pretty adamant that wildfire claims can't be litigated as a class just because like the damages just vary so, so much. And like, um, I mean, you could have, you know, somebody who like lost their house, but wasn't hurt. You could have somebody who was hurt and lost their house. You have wrongful death claims or you could have like, you know, people who were injured, and but they didn't yeah. lose any property because Maui is a tourist destination. Right. That's a lot of variety
0: there. Yeah. And what about the possibility of MDLs? That seems like another vehicle to maybe consolidate some of this action that we're anticipating will continue to grow. Yeah, I suppose
3: that's one possibility. Um, it, pretty much everyone I talk to, um, seemed, it seems to be more of a, co- a question of when, not if, that these claims will be handed through bankruptcy. Which is like what? PGE did end up doing.
0: Yeah, tell me more about that, Emily. You kind of took the words out of my mouth. I was going <laughs> to ask about that because with this looming potential huge universe of liability, it would be a rare utility that could face that and not go into bankruptcy. So you're saying that experts predicted that's likely the course here for for what's going to happen in Hawaii? Yes,
3: yeah, so it's likely the course, and it's, I mean it's going to be up to Hawaiian Electric and its board. But um, I think the estimated liabilities are from between like $4 billion and $5 billion. Wow. Um, And yeah, and Hawaiians, um, its market capitalization before the fire was about $4 billion, and now it's fallen to about
0: $1.2 Yeah, you would imagine that a valuation would certainly plummet in the face of this disaster. Um, so we think this will probably take the shape of what happened in California then, that it, it all ends up being funneled through a bankruptcy.
3: Yeah, that seems to be the likeliest scenario.
0: So I'm very curious now, we've been making a lot of comparisons between California now to what's happening in Hawaii. Many people talk about how climate change is just going to make disasters like this more and more prevalent. How's that playing into the lessons that other utilities are taking from these disasters? What are they learning about either how to defend against claims or what they should do ahead of time? Mm-hmm. What is, what's kind of some of the bigger picture stuff, since it doesn't seem like events like this are going to stay rare?
3: Yeah. I mean, like, I think, you know, collectively as a society, we have just failed to meaningfully address climate change. And one of those consequences that we just not, we now need to adapt. And that means that utilities have to adapt. Um, San Diego did that after a wildfire in 2007. So it now has like safeguards in place for high winds, and risky situations. Um, That's called hardening the system. It's just, it just—it just doesn't strike me as like a realistic. Like we all know climate change is happening. Like we're experiencing it. Like this is like this is the moment. Like and you can't just point the finger at climate change and say, "Well, that's it." Like you know, right. So you, the world we live in now.
0: <laughs> so you don't think that utility companies can meaningfully say, "Don't hold us liable, blame the climate change. We we couldn't do anything about it." Yeah,
3: I mean, we've known this was coming for years. We are seeing it happen. Like you can't just sit on your hands.
0: (laughs) Emily, I guess the big takeaway is that utility companies now should really look to this and definitely take those steps to harden their systems.
3: Yes, absolutely.
0: Thank you so much for coming on the show and explaining it. Really appreciate it. What a big story. I know you'll have a lot of coverage for us in the coming months.
3: Great, thanks. It was nice to be on.
0: We like to end our show with something offbeat. And Haley, I think you've got one for us today. Friends, I want us to talk about making
2: mistakes on the internet. Uh Uh-oh. We've all done it in some capacity. Maybe, you know, replied to something on Twitter and then got into a fight that you regret. We're all old enough, fortunately, that we did not have access to... uh, Many of these social media platforms when we were of ages where we would have done stupider things.
1: Thank God for that.
0: I feel blessed every day for that fact.
2: Oh,
1: same. Mm -hmm. Well,
2: a New Jersey state judge with uh, a bit of a TikTok habit is facing an ethics complaint now because of a string of videos he posted publicly. I will emphasize that they were public of uh, the judge lip syncing songs that. He has himself said contained admittedly vulgar language. A fun detail here is that some of these videos were filmed in the courthouse, in chambers, and while he was wearing his judicial robes. (laughs) The judge is not denying that he posted these videos, but he says they really don't have anything to do with his job. So leave him alone.
0: You know, this is when that Jimmy Fallon segment that got spun off into its own show, Lip Sync Battle. It's gone too far when judges are getting in on the act <laughs> in chambers, in their robes. But tell me about this judge. What's, what's going on in my state? What happened?
1: <laughs> More stuff to blame Jimmy Fallon about. I'm all for that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. anyway. Add it to the list. Anyway, yes. Uh, tell us about the judge.
2: <laughs> this judge's name is Gary Wilcox. He's a judge for the Bergen County Superior Court. He's in his late 50s, he has a law degree from Harvard, and he was appointed to the bench in 2011. But on TikTok, he goes by the alias Sal Tortorella.
1: Tortorella, I think, is, what we're, uh, is oh, what we're after there.
0: Sorry, I'm giving it the, the, uh, the <laughs> Spanish pronunciation. You're, you're reading well, it no, because Italian. you're sitting in California. But in New Jersey, we read it as if it could right. be a character on The Sopranos. That's how we roll <laughs> here. Is,
1: You're right.
2: This is simply a a cultural (laughs) difference. I know, I know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So what's
2: what's Sal Tortorella up to? Let me just run down a few of these videos for you
1: guys. Please.
2: One was recorded in chambers while Judge Wilcox was wearing a t-shirt and lip syncing to Jump by Rihanna. Among the lyrics in that song, If you want it, let's do it. Ride it, my pony. My saddle is waiting. Come and jump on it. If you want it, let's do it.
1: right, I mean, obviously she's riffing on Genuine's pony there, and this is not relevant to what happened with the judge, but I did just want to say I played Genuine's pony at my wedding, and that was, (laughs) the place went up for grabs when that happened. Um, (laughs) Of course it did. Anyway, I don't want to, there are other things that are a little more salacious here with the judge. So what else did he post?
2: In another video, he's again in chambers. This time he's wearing a suit and tie with law books visible behind him. As he lip syncs, all my life I've been waiting for somebody to whoop my ass. I mean business. And then he has uh, he's lip syncing a lyric that uses a racial slur that I will obviously not not repeat here. Another video shows him in chambers holding cash and pretending to light a match. He is wearing a Beavis and Butthead t-shirt <laughs> while the Nas song Get Down plays. If you are not familiar with yeah. Get Down, this song contains explicit lyrics concerning a criminal case, a courtroom shooting, derogatory and discriminatory terms, and drug and gang references. That's, you know, how the uh, how the ethics complaint diplomatically described it.
0: I would like to point out yet again, this is a man in his late 50s. This is amazing to me. I thought it was important to include this detail. <laughs> uh, okay, so <laughs> he's actually saying, though... That all of these shenanigans you've outlined, that they don't warrant discipline? Like, what's his argument?
2: His argument, look, I'll call it wholesome. It really is. It's wholesome in our internet age. My my chronically online self just finds this wholesome. He says he didn't understand what public meant. (laughs) So (laughs) with a lot of these videos, he just thought only his friends and family would see them. Another argument that I think is wholesome here, he's like, I got into TikTok during COVID shutdowns. Yeah. And it was, (laughs) I was very isolated. And my understanding was this was just like a nice way to connect and that he was engaging in what he called silly, harmless, and innocent fun. And he's also like, and those are my, those are the wholesome arguments here. His other arguments, he's like, look, I'm a hip hop fan. Hip-hop is everywhere. It's on the radio. It's on commercials. What's the difference? And he's like, this has nothing to do with me being a judge. I was not doing this when I was supposed to be working. I was not doing this in any
0: capacity as a judge. Although although I was in my chambers and there were law books. And exactly. right? I was in the I'm courthouse like, and I was wearing my don't robes. Know. Don't worry about it, though. It's not connected to me being a judge. And look, I don't want to be the killjoy here. Except I'm about to be. (laughs) I don't like a judge who can't understand what the word publicly means in the context of social media because so often what a judge is weighing in on is the meaning of plain language in statutes. (laughs) They also often have cases that turn on technology of various sorts. Like, to have a judge who's like, don't mind me, I'm just an, an older guy who in the lockdown thought it was kind of fun and I didn't know publicly meant, you know, public. Yeah. It's crazy. yeah. Kind of a,
1: that's kind of a second order thing with the idea of like that he doesn't understand the, the nature of a public video. I will say I kind of understand the argument he's making about, I mean, I don't like support the utterance of like racial slurs or anything, but if he's literally just like, rapping along, but not actually speaking it. That's the only thing that kind of even sends up a flag. This idea about that you can't even like do a rap song as a judge. Like I do understand that to be a little bit like I I can see an argument that that's a little bit pearl clutchy or whatever. I don't know. We'll see how we'll see how it shakes out.
0: Yeah, I would much more side with the judge here, I guess, if I thought that this really did all just turn on whether or not it was rap songs or not. But I'm pretty sure that people also would have been upset with him if it, he'd been lip singing Frank Sinatra in the TikToks, but was still in his robe in his chambers. Like, it's just that it's unbecoming of a judge. That's all I'm saying.
1: I don't think so, though. I mean, the idea no, of like yeah. I, the, the, the idea of like the ethics complaint specifically talk, talking about like drug references, gang references, things I like guess, that. I mean, sure. I mean, that's like sort of like a second that's that's like a lower level of it. And we don't have to get too. It, this yeah. is just like a goofy story. But like the other thing. So, so I don't I don't think I would agree with that, Amber, but I don't know. That's a hypothetical. I guess we don't know for sure. But the only other one thing, way to find out. Only one, hey, yeah, somebody out there. <laughs> judge. I'm sure there are judges listening. You know, sing sing Fleetwood Mac like that guy who was drinking ocean spray or something. Um <laughs> and, Steely Dan. Yes, yeah, Steely Dan. See what goes on. Um, the other story that this reminded me of, we're doing some throwbacks today. We already talked about cheese wall for a little bit. The idea that you have to, that like doing it in the robe really called to mind, this was a more serious thing, but the, the judge that was sending lewd pictures of himself wearing the robe. Oh, oh yeah, uh, forgot about that. This Blocked is not that one right out as, of my memory. Well, yeah, with good reason, I would say. But, you know, I think there's, if you want to make the argument that it's like just beneath your office to appear somewhat like silly in your official garb. You're an officer of the court. I guess I could squint and see that. But yeah, I mean, the guy's clearly being like, I'm a judge and I'm doing rap songs. What's going on? It's got Kendall Roy and money
0: on fire. <laughs>
1: yes, that's for the board to decide. And I guess I guess we'll see how it goes. But it's, you know, this is there's a couple layers to it, I would say.
0: It goes without saying, how many times have we said on the show, be careful on the Internet? I think that's well, yeah, always sure? the takeaway. Uh, but really loved hearing about this story, Haley. Thanks for bringing it to us. It was my pleasure. And Alex, thanks for being with me today.
1: Always a pleasure. Thank you, guys. See you next week.
0: I also want to thank our producers, Kelly Mercano and Stephen Trader, our guest this week, Emily Field, and contributing reporters, Ben Guerreri, Elliot Weld, and Peter Kang. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Keller Mercano. If you like Pro Se, we'd love it if you left us five stars and a written review to help other people find our show. If you want to read more about anything we've talked about today, that's when you check out our website, law360.com podcast. Thanks, and see you back here next week.